Welcome to the HR Futures Podcast, brought to you by Expedite HR, the organisation behind Working Futures, the event for HR directors, and the new mobile application, Circal, the only app dedicated to developing and improving the HR profession. This podcast is also brought to you in association with Zealous, the market-leading provider of payroll, HR, and managed services. My name's Kevin Green, and I'm your host. And with me today... Uh, I'm delighted to have as our guest, Shaquille Butt, who is the chief exec, founder, driving force of HR Hero for Hire. Welcome, Shaquille. Thank you. Um, Tell us a little bit, I suppose, to start with about what you're currently doing. You know, this, because again, I think you left full-time employment 18 months ago. That's right. Set up your own thing. Tell us why you did that and how's it going? What are you What are you up to? Well, I've been uh, in this space now for about 18 months, as you've said, and I left because I was made redundant. So it wasn't by choice. Um, however, I think it's the best thing that I ever did. I've been working since I was 18, worked constantly until the age of 48. Hadn't imagined any other kind of lifestyle prior to becoming redundant. Thought I'd be working and being employed forever until I dropped. Okay. So for me, this has been an exciting time. It's been very different. It's been very challenging. And I've enjoyed every minute. So when you were made redundant, why do this rather than go and get another HR director's job? Because again, I know you're passionate about HR and we'll talk a bit about Okay, that. so I'll put cards on the table. So there's, there's two stories to this. On the one hand, when I was HRD, I used to often use different consultants to do pieces of work. And I'd often think to myself, yeah, I could have probably done that. And I'd see what rate I was paying them. And I think, okay, perhaps I'm, I'm missing a trick here. So that was one driver. The other thing was I'd worked, my career was perhaps a little bit convoluted. So I'd spent 20 years in finance, um, spent eight years then as HRD. So when I was put onto the market, I wasn't quite right for either role. So I'd been too out of, out of a, a finance role for too long. And I'd only been a HRD for eight years with no other prior experience. So when I was going for HRD roles, I was competing against other HRDs who had worked in a number of different sectors, industries, had 20, 30 years in HR and and then become HR directors. So it wasn't a level playing field. Um, So there's a number of different drivers. And so I thought, okay, I need to play to my strengths and do what I want to do as opposed to what I had always done. Okay. So tell us about um, HR hero for hire. What do you do? What do you specialize in? What's What's the thing that you get really excited about doing now? So that's a great question. The things that I have done and the things what I market myself as doing, and the, the two are quite different. Okay. So when I set up my consultancy, it was to you know, offer HR solutions, OD interventions, executive support, and public speaking. Now, out of those four different categories, um, I've done more public speaking than I've ever done uh, over the last 18 months. I've been very fortunate. I've been invited to conferences uh, events. Uh, obviously, I'm involved with the task force as well at, uh, with Expedite. And that's really does ring my bell because I enjoy public speaking. And you're good at it, by the way. Hence, oh. I mean, I follow you on LinkedIn and you're always somewhere around the world posting an HR yeah, conference. Yeah, well, I, it's, I mean, I've, as I've said, I've, I've, in, I've enjoyed it and I think that comes across, hopefully the passion yeah, yeah. and the energy. And I, I've been very conscious not to try to be somebody else, but to be myself. Warts and all. So I'm very open about what I can and can't do and can deliver. Um, the other thing I've, I've seemed to have fallen into is writing. I've been writing articles now. Um, I started about two years ago, but since I think it's June 2017, I've had an article published every single month in either HR magazine or People Management magazine or, a, or on some HR platform somewhere. And that has helped create my credibility and visibility. Right. 
and that's led to more conference events and, and public speaking, which is so the one has helped the other. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm really enjoying that. Um, and then the HR working with clients, how's that going? Because clearly you want to do the speaking because yeah. that's profile and interesting yeah. and meeting lots of people, which is great. The writing, again, is raises the profile, gets your views out there into the world. And the sort of consultancy work you do? So it's interesting. I actually know through my uh, CIPD hat, and we'll talk about that later, and through my uh, being a judge on different HR bodies, yeah. um, I, I've, I've got to know and meet many HR directors you know, in, in big brands. But that's actually not to my advantage because most of these HR directors, when they need consultancy support, will go to the big, you know, yeah. the big consultancy. So, you know, the... And, you know, good luck to them because they charge a lot more and, and probably offer yeah. very similar services. So I haven't um, found myself working on the kind of HR issues I'd like to work on. Yeah. Having said that, though, I'm loving what I'm doing right now, which is I've got involved in a number of investigations for Ooh, a right. range of clients, uh, charitable as well as corporate. And that really resonates with what I'm about because it is about doing the right thing. Hence the name HR Hero for Hire. Okay, great. So... Um, Tell us a little bit about, you mentioned it already, about how did you get into HR? Because, mm. you know, and one of the things I'm going to explore with you is a little bit about what HR career routes should look like. But what you find is most HR people mm. go into HR, stay in HR, perhaps do a generalist role, then do a specialist role, yeah. and may end up as an HR director. But yours was a very different journey. So tell us a bit about your early finance career, sure. and then why that big shift? You know, I know it was in the same organisation, but even mm. so, shift from finance. That was a massive to, shift. Yeah, yeah. So I started in finance. I spent five and a half years in finance. I went into finance because both my sisters were accountants, and at that young age, I thought to myself, well, how hard can it be? And it was Ooh. pretty hard. <laughs> uh, I thought if my sisters can do it, surely I should be able to uh, have a fair shot. Um I spent five and a half years in a practice doing accountancy and auditing, okay. uh, working with different clients, looking at different systems, meeting different people. And that's really where I, I, I built my people skills. Because again, being an auditor, yeah, yeah, yeah. if you can't engage with your client, you're not going to yeah, yeah. get very far. Uh, my understanding around organizational structures and systems, again, came from being exposed to different industries, different sectors. So I learned a lot from that time. And at that time, did you do your sort of professional qualification? Yeah, so you I became my ACCA to... qualification. Okay. Uh, and that was the hardest thing I've ever done still to date. Um, it's like pulling teeth, literally. Um, and then when I moved into the charitable space, it was because I'd been volunteering with this charity for about four, four years or so. And they'd been asking me to join them to come and help build their finance mm. team. I wasn't... My, my sisters, by comparison, were working for the big four, PwC, KPMG, so... And they, they saw this as, a, as me doing my charitable bit and expecting me to be there for a year and, and then get out. Yeah. I ended up staying there for the next 22 years, um, 15 of which I spent leading up, heading up their accounts team. I enjoyed it. It was, it was great work. It was, I was there at the very early stages. It was a £3 million organisation. By the time I left, it was a £180 million organisation. Crumbs, that's huge. So crumbs. massive growth in a very short space of time. So what's up, during that first sort of 10, 15 years... Mm. They go, it went from being a three, four million pound turnover business to 180 million turnover. Yeah, that's right. It actually ended up being one of the top five charities in the UK working internationally in relief and development. So great to be part of that legacy. Great to have been uh, part of an organization that's very purposeful. But I'd got, if I'm being honest, by 2009, I got quite bored. Uh, I'd become quite complacent. I wasn't developing myself. So why not go to another organization? Because you've got that 20 years track record. There, there, was, a, there was a real, well, there's two things. One, it was Birmingham-based, which is where I'm based. And all the other big charities were London-based, primarily. Okay. Oxfam being the exception. 
Um, the other thing was I was quite passionate about this organization. It's something that I'd, I'd gone to the countries where we actually worked. I'd been to Sudan, I'd been to uh, Palestine, I'd been to Yemen. I'd seen real hardship, I'd seen real poverty. And once you've seen that, it's hard not to unsee it. And, it's, and it stays with you. So the work I was doing, I actually felt a lot of fulfillment. Um, but the work I was doing was quite, I was now repeating myself. We'd gone through a number of different auditors and yeah, changes. Yeah, yeah. We've had, I was on my second iteration of the finance software implementation and policies and procedures being revised again, rebuilt you know, the team repeatedly. And I was thinking, you know, I'd got to the point where I thought I could carry on, I could do this really in my sleep. There wasn't, the, the challenge wasn't there and it was just more tinkering and um, playing with what I was doing rather than developing okay. what I was doing. So you mentioned that, that uh, you know, you moved from finance to HR. What was the catalyst for that? Was it a, a burning desire to get into HR or was it an opportunity that presented itself? So in 2009, the organisation I was part of um, was going through a restructure. It grown very quickly, very organically over a very short space of time. And it was probably, uh, you know, a victim of its own success. We were working in 40 countries around the world, working in relief uh, and disaster areas, working with the most vulnerable communities in the Middle East, in Asia, in Africa, in Eastern Europe, um, anywhere and everywhere. If there, was a, if there was an issue, if there was a humanitarian need, we'd normally be, you know, on, on the ground doing yeah. relief efforts. So it was a very purposeful organisation. So I had no real desire myself to ever leave at that point in time. Um, this restructure happened in 2009. The incumbent finance director uh, was reappointed. I'd applied for the finance director role. Um, but in doing so, it put me in front of the trustees. And they had a new division, actually had two divisions. They had a comms division and a um, HR and organization development division. So they asked me to babysit both whilst they found both oh, roles, okay. um, which was quite interesting and fun actually, because I'd, I'd not yeah. done anything outside of finance for the last, you know, so when they offered you that job, did you see it as just a short-term thing? You know, give me the chance to try something else to demonstrate that I've got some leadership potential. And it was a very fortunate time um, for me because it meant I was now trying new ideas and new things that I had no idea on how to deliver on. Uh, so it was a great learning opportunity, and I thought, if the worst case scenario, it goes wrong. Three months, I'll be back in my finance role and, and you know, no, none the worse. Unfortunately, or fortunately, depends on how you look at it, they didn't find anybody in the HR director role or the comms director So did role. it just carry drifting on? So did it go sort of nine months? It went from three minute? months to six, six to nine, nine to 18. Um, and each time they went to market, they, they didn't have any success finding the HR director. At the 18th month point, uh, actually, before I get to that, at the 12th month point, um, I was offered an opportunity to actually take on the finance director role because the finance uh, director had actually now left. Yeah. And uh, I got asked, would I like to now return to finance? And that was quite funny because I'd spent all this time in this organization thinking that was the, the, the end point of my career, that I'd end up in the finance director role. And here it was being offered to me and I no longer wanted it. So you've been doing the HR comms role for about a year. They come back and offer you the job you originally wanted, mm. the, you know, the FD. So what was it in that year that you got really quite excited about in the HR and comms role? Because that obviously was a big moment in your life and your career. I was going, mm. no, I'm, I'm going to turn my back on finance and focus on this new thing. Well, my wife thought it was suicide uh, <laughs> at the time. She, she was, and it was very clear that finance roles are better paid, they're more secure, more opportunities. Um, 
But that's because I was enjoying it. I was enjoying what I was doing. It had gone away from being just a babysitting role. I was now delivering on, on developing the strategy of the organization. Um, I had my heads of department in post. We, I was working very closely with them on a number of different tracks. Um, the HR and organization development division of my organization at that time was a, it had HR, it had learning, but it also had audit. So I felt, internal okay. audit, sorry. Yeah, so I yeah. felt I had managed to somehow keep my hand in the, in the finance world in some, to some degree. But I also had monitoring and evaluation, which was about the impact and quality of our programs and whether or not they were, we were actually making a difference, which was really yeah, again, yeah, resonated yeah. with me. So it was a very mixed bag. Uh, and I also had strategy, policy and process. Strategy with the big uh, policy with the big P, so policy our policy positions on HIV AIDS on climate change, but also policy with the small P. So, so it's a broad role, very broad role, very broad role. So lots of different areas for me to develop, lots of different areas for me to learn about, um, and the way I uh, approached my um, role was to actually reach out to other HR directors, and that proved to be the best thing I ever did, because I'd now connected with HR directors from you know World Vision, from Christian Aid from Waterade, Amnesty International, Fairtrade. And I just went to them very openly and was very honest. Look, I haven't got a clue what I'm doing. I'm from the finance world. Um, I've been tasked with X, Y, and Z. What can I learn from you and what can I steal from you very openly? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know, well, are there I policies? Are yeah, there processes? Are there systems? Are there people I can talk to? And that really helped develop and shape my thinking. Uh, and I was able to bring that back into the boardroom. So you, get, you, you, you turn down the FD role. Yeah. How long before they sort of confirmed you and said, look, just do this job then and do it permanently? Was that quite quickly afterwards? It was at the 18th month point, um, they gave me a choice. They said, if, we, if I wanted to continue, I'd have to go back to university and get qualified. They wanted me to ensure that I was credible um, on, on, on this, in this space. Now, for me, that was quite frightening. I was 41 at the time, I think. And to go back to university after I hadn't studied since 1996 was quite daunting. One, I wasn't sure if I'd, I was able to study again. Um, but it worked out, you know, it turned out to be, again, one of the best things I ever did. Because again, I, I re-evaluated what I actually thought I knew about HR. Um, and I'll come back to how fit for purpose you know, these, the qualifications yeah. are later, perhaps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was very clear. My understanding of HR, which was very transactional, was very different to what HR potentially could be. But the biggest advantage I had was as HR director, I had, unlike my fellow students, I had the full autonomy and authority to implement change. So I was taking everything I learnt in the, in, yeah, at the yeah. university, everything I learnt from HR, other HR directors, and going back into my workplace and saying, guys, here's what we're going to do now. So when they gave you that offer, you well, did you go home and think about it? Was no, there a moment no. for it? You shook their hand and the said, only thing yeah, I, The only thing I thought about, if I'm being honest, was whether or not I could get them to... Uh, remove the requirement to go back to university because that that was the only daunting part but the actual role and the offer i was very excited about cool so the university bit mm. so so you went back and did an ma in hr didn't you so well, i did my certificate diploma and the ma oh right in one yeah so over a three-year period uh, i was working part i was doing it part-time uh, so you uh, have to do it in the evenings or thankfully in the afternoons oh Thank, okay. thankfully in the afternoons, so it wasn't as bad yeah. Um, but the biggest difference was my mindset. When I studied as a student, I was terrible. Um, I saw I saw studying as a, as a chore, uh, a means to an end, something to please the family. When I went back in at that age, um, I was trying to role model to my children what good looks like, what hard work <laughs> looks like, because they were doing their GCSEs and yeah, A-levels yeah, yeah. at the time. So you all sat around the table studying yeah, at yeah, the same so time. Exactly. Um, and that paid dividends in terms of my results, but also in terms of their results. So it was a win-win all around. 
So uh, try and bring us up to speed. So you do the, the qualifications, you uh, pass all of those, you then get confirmed in the HR director's role. And then there's most probably another five years, I suppose, of you driving the HR agenda and making a difference. Well, the, the thing that we started um, back in 2009 on the back of the restructure was the strategy. And that became my, my starting point of what we were going to do in terms of our HR strategy for the organization. And I was very, and inherited my team. So the starting point for me was actually to look at the skills and sets in my team to make, to see if they were fit for purpose. Again, um, we had a number of shortcomings on that front. It was very much a transactional team. Mm. Um, a number of people who had no real HR experience had been administrators and ended up in you know, yeah. doing, uh, transactional functions within our organization. Um, so it took a while to actually change the mindset of actually what HR could bring. I had the advantage of having been an accountant. I understood for me to have, to convince people around the table in the boardroom that what we're trying to do is gonna make a difference was I needed numbers. I needed to understand what our turnover, I mean, we, hadn't, we, hadn't, we had no grasp in terms of how many staff we had globally, being a global organization. Every, every part of the organization was working in isolation. So okay. in, in one country, there'd be a HR function, possibly, or an or a administrator looking after the HR function, but it wasn't, wasn't joined up. So they knew how, much, how many people they had. I didn't as HR director. And I remember my, one of my very first um, lectures, a professor, Professor Paul Turner, if I remember correctly, said to ask us the question, um, how many staff do you have? And I, and I thought it was such a simple question, and I couldn't answer it. Um, so that was my starting point, to capture and recognize who we had, of you know where they were their talent their gender yeah. their experience their competencies and so forth and that was the first attempt at mapping our talent across the world and collecting it in one place um looking at our staff turnover understanding you know whether that was a good number or a bad number compared yeah, to our yeah, sector because yeah. again that work hadn't really we never yes. really benchmarked i found the reason we couldn't recruit a hr director was because we were our salaries were out, were out of sync with the market um and that was the first thing one of the first things i was tasked with actually fixing uh, which everyone's very happy about. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> All your colleagues have been yeah, delighted. Yeah, exactly. Um, but also then understanding where our talent was coming from. So yeah. it was interesting to actually see those who were performing our organisation come from other similar-sized charities or bigger and had come to us. And once we started knowing where our talent was coming from, who our talent was, I was going to the boardroom with a, with a first people report of its type, giving metrics around our, cool. our people, um, capturing what we were doing, what we weren't doing well, and what we could be doing differently. Um, repositioning uh, and, and getting the understanding of what HR business partnering really looks like. Um, I'm going to move us on a bit. Yeah, sure. But the, I, I think it gives you the chance to sum, our, sum up, I suspect, where what was your proudest moment? You know, So you've been in HR now most probably 10 years, perhaps a bit longer, yeah. 12 years, I think. Um, You've obviously achieved a lot at um, Islamic Relief Worldwide. It sounds like a great journey. So what was your proudest of? What was the bit you sort of sit there and think, That's, that, that was great, you know, I made a real difference, we did something remarkable? So my proudest point in time was, was when we won HR Team of the Year. And we hadn't, I hadn't gone in expecting us to win, if I'm being, and I know everyone says that, but this is true because we were... The year before, and I'll just backtrack slightly, so two years before, I'd been given the um, award of Most Outstanding Performing Student, and that was awarded to me through my university, putting me forward, because um, at the end of the two years of my qualification, I'd outperformed every single student in the whole of the West Midlands area. I didn't know that at the time. 
Fantastic. I was just competing against my yeah, fellow yeah. students in my class and trying to set a good role model to my kids. When my, when my university told me they'd put me forward and I'd, I'd won the award, I was quite, wow, that's, that's, that's amazing. So I asked the question, does that mean I'm going to appear in the magazine then? And the question, <laughs> answer was no. That is a, is a, that the awards that appear in the magazine are for practical application. What you've won is the award for academic achievement. So, so that was my, okay, that was the goal, point, yeah. that was the goal that was put in front of me. So I knew a lot of the stuff we'd implemented or started to implement was because of what I'd learned in the classroom. Yeah. So the following year, I went for the Michael Kelly Outstanding Student Award. I got the commendation, I didn't win. But that was my first time going to the award ceremony. And I saw and I heard from all the big giants and the, all the big brands about all the things they've been doing. And I sat there with my head of HR and one of our trustees and I said, we've done that. And we've done it better than what I've just heard described. Or we're doing that and we're doing it better than what I've yeah, just yeah. heard being described. So I sat there and I set myself and the head of HR challenge. I want to come back next year. I want us to submit a number of entries because I think we can win. Now, it was I was setting the bar high. I didn't really... I had the belief that we could get nominated but not actually win. Mm. And we, had, we put in about four applications of which three got shortlisted. And we walked away with um, the Commendation for Best Employees Relation Initiative and HR Team of the Year. And when that announcement was made, you know, it was a real, um, a real epiphany moment because we'd done it with a lot less resources. We didn't have the deep pockets that some of our yeah, yeah. other people in that category had. Um, we were still quite a new team. And to walk away with that, with that you know, the star prize of the evening was for us was, was the highlight of my career. Okay, and when you sort of look at that thing, you know, clearly proud at winning the award, proud to be recognised. Mm. Um, and why did they give it to you as Team of the Year? What had you done in relation to building the capability and talent and the mindset of the people there? So, Well, I'll give you two answers to that, because on the one hand, it was we did some great stuff. And again, I say that without any false pride. Because the, the the function was transactional, it wasn't. It was seen as an extension of management. It wasn't seen as an impartial uh, body representing both staff and management. Um, the policies weren't fit for purpose. The practices were quite antiquated. Yeah. So the so the advantage I had was everything everything needed to be done, uh, and it wasn't a it was a question of every stone I turned over. There was something underneath that needed to be addressed. So I had the the opportunity to look at every single thing that the organization is doing in terms of its you know, footprint, in terms of its direction of travel, and think about the HR and the learning uh, implications for the organization. So we, did, we, you know, we addressed our policies, we rebuilt the team, we looked at our, you know, uh, we had a number of tribunal cases at the time, we brought those down to zero, and we've been, we've been tribunal free since. Um, we had um, repositioned ourselves as, as, as an official you know, partner to the organization, We'd seen the organization grow in terms of its financial uh, results as a consequence. So there's some real you know, metrics around the impact we had. And the, the best endorsement we had at the time was from the CEO, who's, who publicly said we were the most outstanding um, performing department of the whole organization. Fantastic. So we had a great accolade. Having said all of that, if I was to go back and do it all again, I would do it completely differently. Come back to that in a minute, because okay. that's a really decent piece mm. of learning, and I want to explore that. But just and, and it might be the answer to this next question. So yeah. when you look back at your career with hindsight, and I mean you're still quite early in your HR career, yeah. you know what's the biggest piece of learning? Is it that you should have gone into HR earlier? Is it that you'd have done the HR stuff in a different way? Mm. Could you have been? 
because you've got their quick, I don't know you, but you know, you look back at the things that you've done and go, I tell you what, I made a mistake there, or with hindsight, I'd do it differently. So tell us so a bit about that. What I would that. do differently, I would certainly have kept challenging myself. I think when I when I completed my ACSA qualification, I had the mindset: now I'm qualified, I've arrived. Um, that's it. There is no more further study after this point. And I and at that point in time, I was quite insular in terms of I wasn't networking externally I wasn't meeting other finance directors I was very much focused on the internal problems of the organization which meant the only solutions I could come up with was, was what was up here and as you can see I'm, I'm, there's not much on top and there's not much, there's not much more inside either um, and I recognize now looking back that it actually limited my growth and it was only once I got out into an area of, of an area that I wasn't comfortable with that I hadn't got familiarity with I really started developing and growing. So I wish I'd pushed myself much sooner because I recognised I was complacent. I didn't see it at the time. I, I just assumed mm. this is what this is what work feels like and looks like. And you do start repeating your greatest hits again and again. That's not really developing and, and learning. So I wish I'd done that sooner. Um, my reasons for my... Uh, I wish I had somebody like myself coming along and mentoring me at an earlier stage in my career okay. who could actually challenge my thinking around what career paths I do have. It's ironic, actually, I was, I was talking at a performance conference in uh, Greece and we we're talking about performance appraisals and there's a lot of, you know, um, negativity around performance appraisals and there's a lot of talk about, you know, moving towards performance conversation and I, and I wholeheartedly support that thinking. Having said that, though, my very first appraisal was quite telling uh, in this accountancy practice. The feedback I got was my strength is I like to talk. The weakness is I like to talk. <laughs> and at the time, 20 years old, I didn't understand that. And I was quite frustrated with my senior partner of the, of the business to, to give me that feedback. Um, it got, you know, I got the rating, whatever it was, probably a B. Mm. But that was the feedback on, on the strengths and weaknesses. Now, looking back, had, and again, it's quite ironic that I now get paid to talk. Um, had I played to my strengths, that's what I'm, I'm naturally good at. I like meeting people. I'm, I'm, I'm comfortable networking you know, a whole room full of strangers. And I don't get uncomfortable you know, speaking publicly. If they'd played to my strengths and built those strengths, I'm just wondering what I could have done for that organization back then. Instead of making me do the, the tick, tick box exercise as an accountant, going out and building client relationships. The negative feedback came back because I'd go to clients with my manager and the client would think I was the manager because I would be so confident and I'd be engaging. Mm. And I'd be asking, you, know, you need to tone it down and let the manager do all the talking. Um, Whereas I thought I was representing the, you know, our brand and our business. So it's interesting, um, again, coming back to your question about what would I do differently. I wish I'd actually play to my strengths okay. rather than trying to um, address you know, new areas that didn't really resonate with me. So you mentioned uh, the charity that you work for, uh, Islamic Relief Worldwide. You talk about it being a very purposeful organisation and doing some great work. I'm interested in... You know, when you was there, tell us a bit about the charity and what it did. Uh, and then tell us about some of the stuff that you did in HR and how that had an impact okay. on it. So the organization began in 1984 and it was following on from Live Aid and work that Bob Geldof did. And he, he shone a light on what was happening in that part of the world. And it coincided with the first time that as a, as a, as a whole global family, we were able to see another part of the world and, and see what was going on. At that time, the founder was a medical doctor. He was attending a conference in Sudan. And what he saw was literally, you know, yeah, yeah. horrified him. And, and he came back uh, to the UK and he showed um, a picture 
of some of these people who were dying in the street from, from hunger to family members. And the family members said, well, we want it, we want it. what can we do to help? And he came back to the UK thinking, well, are there others who would want to help as well? And from that small idea, Islamic Relief was born. And it went on from that very early days of having raised a, you know, a modest amount to where it is today, working in 40 countries around the world. However, having said all of that, initially when, when the founder reached out to his connections, they were, they were, they were well-intentioned, uh, people from the community, but not necessarily skilled aid workers, not yeah, necessarily yeah. Uh, people who had any professional background or discipline. And it wasn't until the late mid-90s to late 90s that people like myself came in as, as professionals trying to change um, the organisation and trying to bring that, that level and technical understanding to aid work. And it's a very scientific um, way, you know, there's, there's a right way to deliver aid and there's a wrong way to deliver aid. There's a way to deliver aid and have impact, or you can just put sticky plaster on the problem and sure. the problem will carry on. So coming back to the HR function, the HR function was is really critical to trying to identify talent because you're looking for talent that is able to work internationally, able and willing to work in areas that are very remote, where there's no infrastructure or, or limited infrastructure, areas that are dangerous. Yeah. Um, there's security concerns about your staff. There's you know, you know well-being is, is a, is a, yeah, is a yeah. paramount issue for the people that you're working with. Um, trying to find staff locally in, in country, again, is a massive challenge. And the turnover is, is, tends to be quite high because, again, there's, it's quite, it is quite a competitive space. It's competitive, but also it's quite challenging. challenging. People may do it for a period and go, yeah, exactly. and, and then say, enough. Yeah. And, we, and, we, and we'd see that. So uh, I was very fortunate that I'd come in at a time where the organisation was still growing. Having been in the organisation for as long as I had, I had the institutional memory, the understanding of the culture and the context, and where we were trying to go, because again, I was part. Of, it was involved yeah. in shaping the values and and the strategy of the organisation. So it sounds like a big impact then. You know, you really helped challenge that whole talent agenda and retention and well-being, and and help the the the, the organisation build itself so that it could grow and develop to the next phase. Now we're going to take a short break. We'll be back in a couple of minutes for the second part of this podcast where. With Shaquille, I'll explore a bit about his role at the CIPD. We'll talk about some of his views about HR, where we go in the future. And then we'll finish off with a little bit about Shaquille the man, what he does outside of work. So back in a couple of moments. Are you looking to reduce risks and operating costs? Or increase your agility and capacity? There's more pressure than ever for HR and finance to provide strategic value for the business and for CEOs. At Zealous, our expert team creates software and manage services that handle your entire payroll and HR admin processes. We believe there are two sides to the employee experience. The fundamentals that need to go unnoticed and experiences that employees really care about. And we can help you master both. We're here to make the complex simple freeing you up to focus on your people and achieve your goals. Find out more at zealous.com. Welcome back to the second part of this HR Futures podcast brought to you by Expedite HR. With me today is Shaquille Butt, who was the HR Director of Islamic Relief Worldwide and is now the Chief Executive Founder and Supremo at HR Hero for Hire. Uh, we've had a great conversation so far. Uh, 
Shaquille's talked a bit about his career, how he got into HR, very different route. And in the second half, I want to move us on. One of the things that I know you're quite passionate about, Shaquille, is diversity and inclusion. I understand, obviously, from from being part of that great organisation that you was, that it must be quite close to your heart. I'm really interested in your views on whereas, you know, a profession, um, HR and organisations are getting this stuff right and where you think there's room for improvement and what we should be doing. Okay, so in terms of diversity and inclusion, the organisation I was part of when I joined was quite undiverse. It's probably the best way to describe it. And I remember being in my team and I, and I, was, and I was very conscious that we'd recruited people I, at the early stages especially, people who they knew. And it was a very small charity and not paying particularly well at that point in time and attracting people who were quite passionate about the cause. Now, as you can imagine, with a name like Islamic Relief, um, we were attracting people from one particular community. Mm-hmm. But the work we were doing was in, as I said, 40 countries around the world, um, all parts of the world. And our mantra was, wherever there's a disaster, we'll be there, regardless. And to be true to that, it was very clear that if we want to reflect the people that we serve, then ideally we need to be able to recruit people from every background, every walk sure. of life. And that was really where, I suppose, I, again, my role um, became very interesting. As the HR director, trying to find talent and trying to find people who could deliver on what the organisation needed them to deliver on, meant I was able to look in, in much wider talent pools. Was there a debate? There must have been quite, you know, there must have been quite a lot of change management in that because I suspect an organisation which starts quite small, faith-based, mm. you know, and then people go, well, actually, we need to attract people there from was, all, there all was, different talents. There was a there conversation, been... not to move too quickly back to finance, it came back to our memorandum of articles and associations. Even though we were Islamic Relief, we weren't a faith-founded organisation. It was a faith-inspired organisation um, but our Memorandum Article Association made it very clear, we are a relief, relief and development organisation. And we are responding to relief uh, and development issues, regardless of race, gender, age, any, any form of you know, discrimination. Sure. Um, and we would work with anyone and everyone in order to reach the people that needed the help the most. The advantage we had, we had a great founding father, and what he would do at Christmas time, especially, would dress up as Santa Claus. <laughs> and he would go around to the different people of different faiths and backgrounds and made sure they, they felt welcomed. And he would you know, dress up and give them presents yeah, and yeah. cards. and be... So there was a real culture that was created uh, from the offset, and that, which I witnessed and I saw. And I used that as part of my induction message when, uh, when we interviewed, when I, one of the things that we rolled out was a new induction program, was to actually say, this is how we, this is how we work. We have people from all parts of the world working here, and we did. We had about 60 or 70 different spoken languages at the headquarters. We really were the United Nations, you know, based in Birmingham. Um, And that meant you're going to have people from different backgrounds, different cultures, different faiths and no faith. And what we expect and what we request is tolerance. Because you're going to have people who differ with you or disagree with you. And I'd I'd always be very open and very friendly at the induction program. But I'd also make a, send a very, you know, clear message. If this isn't, Reckon, you know, um, if this isn't honoured and you know, in terms of what, how we expect to deal with dignity with each other, then unfortunately I'll have to have another conversation with you and it won't be a pleasant one. 
because there is no tolerance for any kind of you know ill treatment based on um, difference. Okay. So that was a great platform to have as the HR director. Yeah. It was also a great opportunity as the as the person uh, responsible for HR because I recognise that the HR function are the gatekeepers to an organisation. So my team was very diverse as well. We had people of again different faiths, different backgrounds, different ethnicities. And again, that added great value because those those are the same individuals who would sit on recruitment panels. Yeah. Um, and if issues did arise, and of course they do, it would come back to me as HR director then to try so to resolve. So what I'm interested in is clearly in, in the organisation that you were in, it sounds like that it was something that was, you know, it was within the DNA. It was part of the organisation. I want to try and draw you back a bit to mm. other organisations because... You know, I see organisation after organisation talking about diversity and inclusion mm. and not making a lot of impact. Yeah. Right, so I'm key on, you know, how do you get it into the DNA? How do you make it part of the re- everyday reality? How do you break down those stereotypes? How do you really change a culture and get people to embrace it and not see it as something they sort of have to do as a compliance strategy? So I'm mm. really interested in your views on that. Okay, I'll I'll, I'll come clean. I. Th- I, there is a, uh, a a reluctance to talk about race. There's a reluctance to talk around things which are make which make people uncomfortable. And uh, unfortunately, I don't think organisations will make great traction until it does become a compliance issue. And I, I say that because when the Equality Act 2010 came out, there was a real hope and expectation. I'm sure that this would be a game changer. It wasn't. Not really. It was used in, you know, you'd see more ER cases and, you know, and the Equality Act might get, you know, cited mm-hmm. that, that in those cases. But in terms of changing behaviours and cultures and practices in organisations, I don't think it happened. I do think with the gender pay gap reporting, once that became uh, a requirement, it focused organisations' attention on, on, those, on that mm-hmm. visible difference. It forced organisations to make, put out a state of intent of what they intended to do in the, from between one year to the next. And it's something that you can actually measure. So I do think, unfortunately, it's going to be the ethnicity pay gap once it becomes legislative and a requirement that will have a similar kind of ripple effect with organisations now having to face openly their challenge around race and having those conversations around diversity. Um, the fact that the conversations are uncomfortable, they should be. Because there is a there is a, uh, a real you know research and evidence shows there's a real gap between um, those who attain and achieve in their career paths compared to you know people of color compared to people who are not of color. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do think the HR industries industry as a whole has a challenge as well though because I uh, and I and I'll explain why at the HR director summit I was there in February this year and again I was speaking at the event. When I looked out into the audience, I could see very few people of colour. I think I saw one black HR director and a few Asian HR directors, but that was pretty much it. And a few weeks later, I was at the CIPD student conference. And I looked out into the audience again, and I could see many people of colour. So it's very clear that people of colour are not uh, making it to the senior ranks within the HR profession. And if, if I'm right, that HR are actually the gatekeepers to organisations and they themselves aren't being diverse, then it's not surprising that boards aren't becoming more diverse because they are, they are brought through through recruitment panels and, you know, and HR processes. I do think agencies um, could do a lot more. I do think a lot of recruitment agencies that I've had experience with haven't done enough. Um, 
there are agencies that are out there that will openly try to source and yeah, look for yeah, talent yeah. in different pools yeah, yeah. Uh, and bring a more diverse candidate yeah. to, to the forefront. But unfortunately, we're still seeing many appointments which you know are still people of, of, of the same type. So I, I do get your bit about yeah. um, we need to you know look for government to take a lead in terms of legislation mm. and regulation. But we've sort of seen the data and the evidence, which is diverse leadership teams outperform those if you've got a you know good gender mix, different mm. races, people with different neurodiversity, just think yeah. differently. You know, yeah. it all adds to an organization's potential for success. And I do get the bit about we do need to regulate because there is a fundamental issue. But why aren't people just taking it and running with the issue? That's what I can't quite get my head around. You know, the business case is there. Yeah. But we're not really taking it and absorbing it and going for it. I'm I'm interested, you know, is it institutional racism actually? Is there some I think unconscious fear. bias it's, in it's, there? It's like any change, it's fear. There okay. is a fear of change. There is a fear of, of what they will lose as opposed to what they will gain. So, I, you know, uh, I've been to roundtables where we've discussed and thrashed this issue out with the HRDs. And essentially, we are asking senior management leaders to give up their positions of authority and power, and which is quite bizarre because my belief is if you empower others you actually become a lot more powerful. But they're holding on to their, you know, their, their reins of power yeah. um, in the belief that this is actually good for the company, and it's not. I was, I was it's a false a, economy. It is. I was at a speech the other day, and I must tell you this little story, because I thought it was a, a brilliant um, example. And it is um, a story. There's a teacher at the front of a classroom, and there's three lines of kids, you know, back row, middle mm. row, front row. And the teacher goes to this group, roll up a piece of paper, you know, uh, turn it into a ball. And at the front is a bin. And if you get it in, there's a prize. Right. Now, immediately the kids at the back go, well, we're at a disadvantage here because we're further yeah. away from the front. The ones in the middle said a little bit. The ones in the front row didn't say anything. Yeah. And that's because those with privilege, you know, yeah. if you change the rules of the game, they're the ones that then lose out. Yeah. So for me, I think there's a lot about how we need to educate, challenge, hold up the mirror using your language, mm. I think, to white middle-class men about the value of exactly what you were talking about, Shaquille, which is this is where the power of diversity really resides within organisations. And, I, and I, I, the reason I think we're spending some time on it is because it's just a huge opportunity and a huge challenge mm. for our organisations. Um, do you want to say some more about Yeah, just that? to add to that point, I also think there's a... On the one hand, it is the case that there's that fear of change. On the other hand, I do think people of colour do have an inferiority complex. There is a, um, a belief that it's actually to your advantage to stay invisible and not to, you know, to become too visible. And one of the things I've, I've tried to, as part of my uh, positioning and branding, as you mentioned it earlier, mm-hmm. I try to be in your face. I, I don't want to be invisible. When I'm at my board meetings at CIPD, I, I, I go out of my way to be heard and make sure I'm heard. Um, because I, I think for too long, people of colour have chosen to be invisible because it's safer. Um, it means you're not going to be you know, at risk of, of coming to the forefront and you're not at risk of having your head shot off. Because it does come with some risks. Yeah. Um, no one likes to be seen as an agitator or a troublemaker. So sometimes if you've had bad experiences, especially if you feel they've been racially driven, it's safer to, you know, to stay yeah, in, the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the shadows. So, so and, and, and how do we challenge that? Is that about role modelling, clearly? Coaching, mentoring? 
you know, networking, workshops, whatever it may be, but it's building that confidence of individuals to be... Well, I've been, I've been, challenge, I've been challenging HR event organizers to actually give people of color more platforms. Yeah. Because I think there is a question of if you see something visible in front of you, yep. you're more likely to think, you know, that is possible. And, and, you've, and you've broken that perception that this is, you know, this is where I'm at and this is where I'm, I'm always going to be. At. Actually, no. Any individual, and I, and I mean every, regardless of race, background, creed, color, etc. Any individual is capable of anything. And as HR professionals, we really believe what we're there about, what we, we say we're about. We're about unleashing human potential. And that's it, human potential. And that's anyone and everyone. Okay. So you mentioned just in passing then the CIPD. I'm, I'm interested in, you know, why you got involved. 2016, 17, you, you went on the board and now you're the treasurer. I'm pleased that we've got a finance professional looking after the money. That's great news. But tell us, why did you get involved? I got involved because after the uh, the HR Team of the Year award, um, they remembered me. Uh, the uh, I didn't know at the time, and maybe if I'd known at the time, I'd have been a bit more apprehensive. I was still quite naive. I didn't know many HR leaders in this space at that point in time. Uh, I, I was pitching to two trustees, one of which was the chair, Louise Fisher. Um, and a year later, the incumbent uh, treasurer was stepping down. So they were they were keen to find somebody who had had a HR hat, but also a finance hat. And there's not many of us around. There's, I only know of two other individuals, one which was the previous in treasurer and one that I'm trying to convince now to, to get ready for in three years' time to step into my shoes. Um, because it is a common to have someone who actually understands numbers and people, yeah, yeah. and they normally are seen as two polar ends, and they're really not. Um, so I got contacted by the company secretary. Would I be interested in applying? Uh, had a, a preliminary interview with the company secretary. Then I had a uh, informal chat with another board member. I had a formal interview with the actual nominations committee. I had a formal interview with Peter Cheese, which was quite, you know, I'd only ever seen him in the magazine, so that was quite daunting as well. And then a final interview with, one of the final interviews was with uh, the incumbent treasurer. So it was quite a, uh, a long, you know, exhaustive, long process. exhaustive process. And I, at each stage, I thought I was going to fall, if I'm being honest, I was going to fall down at some point. So to my delight, I was appointed and it's been, it is a delight because I'm, I am very passionate about what the profession is doing. Uh, I don't think we've had the best reputation. Some of it is, is deserved and uh, I mentioned it, you asked me the question earlier, what would I do differently? Everything I'd implemented in my organisation where I was HRD was based on what I understood to be best practice. Now, some years down the road, I recognise there's no such thing as best practice. There is, there is what's known as best fit what's right for you and your organization, your capacity, your capability, the team that you have, the budget and resources you have, and the appetite of management. All of that factors in. So I would have definitely done everything very differently because I was rolling out models and, and practices which I reflect back on now and I actually think are quite broken. Mm. Um, and they've been broken for a while. And, I, and I'm, I'm very happy to be part of the uh, CIPD now at a point in time where they're actually looking at those models they're looking at the, you know, what we call the curriculum or the professional map, revising it, making it more relevant yeah, for yeah, yeah. HR professionals of today and, and for tomorrow. Um, there's a great, much greater focus on, on um, technology, on using data, which was very absent from yeah, you know, the previous qualifications. Yeah. And I think, you know, recognizing that HR professionals are more than just HR. They, they should be leaders in their organization. They're, they're, they're a, they have that added value that they can bring to the table. Yeah, I'm going to go for a tangent here. One of the things that I'm sort of quite 
interested in mm. is I'm not sure we attract the brightest and the best to HR. So yeah. one of the things I think we need to do when we're, you know, I know you do a lot of speaking as well as I do, you know, we need to be convincing HR directors is we need to compete more with finance and operations and sales and marketing for the best, mm. you know, the best raw material. Uh, and then we can do the professional development stuff. But if we get the right people in, because again, I just think that that's one of our great issues is, um, you know, have we got strong enough people? It doesn't matter how much development, how much, mm. you know, uh, training and development and mindsets, mindset stuff we do. I'm just not convinced we've got the raw material. What's your view on that? That's, a, that's an interesting view because uh, I'll tell you what, I have a different perspective on this and I think Karen B even probably said it better than I could so one of the things I would have done differently if I was to go back to my HR team of the years it was then given that title I'd have actually ensured that every business partner was doing a preliminary or introductory qualification to the area that they're actually partnering with so if you're in sales or marketing or finance I need you to actually study the AAT qualification so you actually understand what your customers are talking about the terminology the jargon the language and what they're trying to achieve. And marketing, if it's marketing. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, good so, and I think Karen touched on this in her book, um, which I got to review, where she actually explains as a, a real HR professional, actually needs to understand what HR does. They need to understand the business they're in. They need to understand the part, the part of the business they're responsible for. Understand the sector they're in and, and the direction of travel. If you can do all of those things and, and, and recognize that you need to be able to do all those things, now you become what, not only indispensable, you become invaluable to the, you know, the organization. And that's how you actually show and demonstrate your added value. So okay. I read, that really resonated with me because I think yeah, as I think HR professionals, we, 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 we talk about the HR stuff and we don't talk about the business stuff. And you need to be able to do both. I, I agree with you. I think you've got to have commercial people and you've mm. got to have business acumen. So one of the things that is interesting is this whole thing about you know, moving people at different points of their career in and out of different functions. You know, HR people tend to stay in HR. That's why your career story is so good because mm. it's, you know, I was in finance for 20 years and then I became the HR. And I think you appreciate it and understand it for, because you've been on the receiving end of the activity, you know? I think you can become quite blindsided if you're in any one discipline. Um, when I was in finance, I'll be honest with you, Kevin, I actually wholeheartedly believe we were the most important function in the organisation because my profession had told me we were. But I also genuinely believed it because we saw all the money coming in, all the money coming out. Yeah. And it wasn't until I actually understood what HR brought to the table, I actually recognized I was quite blinkered. Every business decision, I've come to this conclusion, every single business decision you can ever make has two components, a people dimension and a, and a finance dimension. And if you don't give enough weighting to both, you're not going to be able to help the organization go forward. You're only, you're, you're only working with half your possible impact. Okay, let's move on then. So, I mean, I might touch on the CIPD thing. So, mm. I suppose I can see that you're passionate about it. You can see, I think, I, I, I agree with you, the roadmap is much better. Mm. And the whole professional development thing is moving in the right direction. Do you think it's where we want it to be? Or, or is there still a journey ahead of the CIPD? There's a, there's a big journey ahead. There's a big piece of work to be done. Um, our student numbers are great. But when I meet HRDs, I often get asked the question, and what can the CIPD or what does the CIPD do for me? And I think that's a question that needs to be answered. I'm very, I'm always very happy to talk to anyone from junior level to, to HRDs about what the CIPD is doing, what it can be doing, and also what other HRDs could be doing for the CIPD. 
it is our professional body. It's not a professional, it is our professional body. And as such, I think there's a there's a bigger responsibility for all HR professionals to actually own our professional body and actually help build it and take it in the direction it's going in. Definitely the direction of travel is great and it's, yeah, it's yeah. much improved. I think we've come back to our core purpose, which again we started off as the you know the personnel welfare association, where people were at the heart of what we were about. Yeah. Over the years, we became kind of diluted with and and um, I don't want to say polluted to, but <laughs> diluted definitely, because we started talking about efficiencies and restructures. That's not what we were about. We are about people and how you get the best and maximum value out of your people through treating them like people. So it's great that I see that you know within the HR space we're talking more about empathy, we're talking more about well-being and you know and and mental health because I think for too long we we've 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 fallen into line with you know the finance person is responsible for looking at cost efficiencies and savings. That's not us. And we've also been we've been drawn into that whole trap of trying to push people harder to do more, do it faster and do it with less. That is not us. Our mantra and our role is about how do we get the best out of people to help them live you know, productive lives in the workplace and at home. Yeah, I, get, I sort of agree. But I, there's, a, there's a bit of a challenge in yeah, there, right. which is the bit about, I get, you know, the whole thing about being an, a people professional, an mm. HR professional is, is, you know, the potential of people. And what we're about, I think, is about demonstrating how if you treat people well, you motivate, engage, mm. inspire you'll get superior performance, you'll get efficiencies, you'll yeah. get the right business results. Um, so I, I, I sort of agree, but yeah. I just think there's... No, a, I think you're right. I mean, yeah. it's, it's all of that and, and, and so much more. Yeah. Um, again, Simon Sinek said it beautifully, you know, when, it, when you talk about purpose, it is about the why. Always. If you, if, as HR professionals, we can connect people back to the organisational purpose. And as Simon Sinek said, it's never about money. There is a purpose. And if you can get back to core purpose... And inspire and motivate and, and, and reconnect people with each other and with the organization, you're going to get so much more out of them. A couple of short ones then, a couple yep. of short questions, yep, and then I want to finish it. So, one, young person comes to you, I'm thinking about a career in HR. Tell me about the pros and cons. You'd say to them, This is the great stuff about being in HR. Here are some of the challenges or some of the things you may be aware of. So, I've just done a, perhaps I've done a degree, my first degree, thinking about HR. They come and sit in front of you. What do you say? So I often get people connecting with me on LinkedIn, asking me a similar kind of question. They've done their degree and they're trying to get their first role in an organization. And they're struggling because that catch-22, they haven't got the experience, so they're not being considered. And what I've always advised them is actually, you know, again, having that charitable hat on, find a local charity because you'll find one somewhere within your vicinity. Ideally, if you find a, a larger one, it would be better, but find a charity in your, in your, in your vicinity, offer your health and support and services, because they will need it. Yes. And they will welcome you with open arms if you can commit a certain number of days every week and so on and so forth. And you'll build your experience and give you something to actually you know, sell yourself for, to a future prospect. Good idea. Um, I do think there's a... Um, with the HR professionals of the future, they do need to have a clear understanding of what is expected. It has changed. The the models and the and the and the um, areas of learning that have been churned out for so many years in HR are, are falling to the side. So it's not about models from the 70s and the 80s. It is about staying current. So my advice to any young HR professional is make sure you're current, stay current, keep yourself updated, understand what's happening in terms of trends. 
what's happening in your if you have a preferred industry what's happening in that industry and get out there get out of your, get out of your own way yeah, yeah my biggest learning was by meeting other hr directors and professionals i accelerated my learning you know a hundredfold and i and i keep doing that and i and i love meeting people i like being the idiot in the room because it means i've got something to learn yeah, and, yeah, and, I'm, yeah, and i'm good at being the idiot in the room um but you know be humble you no, i think yeah i think yeah and one of the things i would say is mm. it's an interesting thing there's a as I've been listening to you, Shaquille, there's a bit of, there's a dichotomy within you. One is that, you know, you are in people's face. You put yourself forward. You, you know, you hold up the mirror. You've got quite a, a personality. But at the same time, you're quite humble. And that's quite an interesting mix, isn't it? You know, do you see that in yourself? I do. Uh, I think I'm, I'm gifted in so far as I don't get nervous. And that's one of my gifts. It's very rare I'll actually, you know, suddenly become aware that everyone's listening to me. So I have I have that advantage. I don't really worry about what other people will think. Yeah, yeah. What worries me is is can I be true to what I think? And I'm yeah. happy to be you know, open and to be challenged. And I'm happy for someone to actually say, actually, Shakil, you got that wrong, because uh, that's what I've learnt. I've learnt, you know, if you don't open yourself up to criticism, if you don't open yourself up to you know hearing a different voice, you yeah. become part of the problem. Okay. Um, so. You've been doing this stuff for 18 months. What's your biggest surprise? You know, what's the what's the thing you go, well, I didn't expect to I didn't expect to be talking at conferences in Egypt and Greece or what I don't know, there might be it. Well, so the, the biggest first shock was not having a, an executive assistant. I'd become quite spoiled. <laughs> uh, all my diarising, all my you know, expenses, everything had been I'd been quite pampered and I didn't realise I'd become quite pampered. Um and I miss that. So I tell you what, <laughs> I must tell you this story. I, I, you know, I went on my own a, a year ago. Mm. Within a week, I phoned up one of my ex-PAs and said, I need some help. I, I, I mean, exactly the same. I, I was a shambles. Mm. You know, I couldn't really. So I'd become pampered and I recognised that I didn't need as much support, but I needed mm. a little bit so that I could spend time doing what. So I totally get that one. So I'm very much about big picture. I can do detail because I'm an accountant. I have to. I've been trained to, but I don't like doing the detail but it's become a necessary evil so that was probably the first shock of how dependent I'd become um, there was a real question mark around whether or not I could make it in this space and I went in fully aware of that I was, I was entering a new way of working uh, I'd, I'd worked for somebody all my life I'd never you know 30 years from age of 18 to 48 I'd never worked for anybody but somebody else to work for yourself was was great because it was lots of self-learning and reflection you know, who am I? take away the title, take away the brand. Who who is Shaquille Butt? And that was a that took me three months to answer, if I'm being honest. You know, in terms of you know my vision, my mission, my values, um, what was important to me. What did it, you know? Again, having been a HRD, I touched on this at the very beginning when you asked me what I, what I offer, and I said I I offer one thing, but I deliver something else because I could do a whole gamut of of HR services, but I don't enjoy all of them. There's things that I don't actually enjoy, but I did as a HRD because it's part of my role. So I'm trying to um, do the work I enjoy, the work that makes me come alive and inspires me. And I'm enjoying that. I mean, I'm definitely and, enjoying this and time. And the, bit, the bit that really inspires you. So, so okay, let's be really, let's get okay. nitty gritty. So the bit that, you know, if you give me a project like that, I'd do it for you and I'd do a good job, but yeah, I'd just be doing the job. Mm. Ask me to do this and I'd... This is, you know, this gets me out of bed in the morning. I jump out of bed. I can't wait for the day. There's two things. So being creative. Um, if somebody asks me to speak, you know, speak at an event, and it's an, and it's a talk I've never done before, that that process of, of creating that talk, that session or that you know uh, delivery for training, I love that part. 
Okay. It takes a lot of time, and I'm I'm, a, I'm very critical on myself, and I'm a bit of a perfectionist. I'll, I'll rehearse it, and I'll rehearse it. And, you know, that one-hour talk, I'll have probably delivered it about 30 times before I actually deliver it, because I'll have you know tried it in different ways and shaped it and, sh- and changed it right up to the last point and moment in time. The other thing I really enjoy is in the satisfaction of doing the right thing, whether that's at the CIPD or whether that's yeah. you know working with as I, I work with young people with my uh, mosaic hat on. Doing the right thing for me is absolutely everything. And I think that comes back down to purpose. Okay. So, purpose is good because it gives me, leads me, you know, it's as if we'd planned this, as <laughs> if we'd really planned this. So, second to last question, though. Okay. So, when you look back on your career, you know, mm. when you decide that you're going to hang up your boots and you, you, you're finished, what would you like your legacy to be? What would you like people to be saying about your contribution to the world? That's a great question. I think the every one of us at some point in time asks that question of ourselves, and sometimes it can come quite come quite late in your life. Sometimes it comes quite early. I was quite fortunate um, that for me that that happened in 1990. My father passed away in 1990, and I was quite taken by stories I heard about my father from people who knew him long before I was on the scene. People who worked with him when he first, you know, was working, you know, was in the mm. UK, um, and he worked on the production line uh, as many did in in, in the seventies, sixties uh, and seventies, and just to hear those stories about my father and knowing that he'd made a difference to those individuals, um, it was quite uh, inspiring for me to hear those stories about my father because my father was just my father, and you know, and it put me in a, in a different mindset about my own, you know, uh, mortality, because you don't think about death. And you know, my father passing away when I was 20 really brought that home. Um, working abroad and having seen people who are living either on the edge or on, on you know, the cusp of life and death, it doesn't, you know, for me, it begs the question, you know, what difference will I have made once I'm passed? And what will I have left behind? And for me, that is very, is very important. My children are very important for me in terms of what they do with their lives. Yep. Um, but I'd like to, you know, my, my, my vision statement on my, on my website is to have lived a value-lived life. And that's it. I want to have known that I've lived a value-lived life. My um, principle, my, my mission statement is ABC. I want to be able to A, add value. So whatever I do, if I'm working with you, I yeah, want to yeah. know that I've added value. B, I want to be valued. And that's where the higher bit comes in. Yeah, but yeah. also appreciation and recognition. Yeah, yeah. And then finally, C, I want to see values. So I want to see that the organization I'm working with has some values behind it. Um, and that's how I get to feel I've lived my purpose. Fantastic. Okay, so now final question. Tell us a bit about what you do outside of your professional life. So what are your passions? Is it sport, music, travel? I'm sure family, you've already mentioned families yeah, yeah. in there. But just tell us a bit about the person outside of the you know, HR hero? Well, the person's blurred a lot because when I was in my HRD role, it was a Monday to Friday, typically kind of working week and weekends. You know, sometimes I'd work weekends, but, you know, yeah. I had a clear dis- distinction. Now I don't. So work is blurred. And that's a good thing because it also means I get to be more of me more often. So I, I, I do love spending time with family. I do love, I'm just watching Avengers Endgame. If you haven't seen yeah. it, it's brilliant. I won't spoil it for you. Um, I'm a big comic book nerd. So, oh, are you? Yeah, okay. yeah. What, so Marvel and DC? Marvel, DC, you name it. You know, I love Star Wars. Was, did that Who. come early? Was that early in your oh, life? Oh, that's very early. Yeah, that, yeah. that takes me back all the way to my childhood. Um, I was very asthmatic as a child. So for me, I used to read all these stories about these, you know, these characters, hence HR Hero for Hire, because it, it all links ah, back. 
And I and I want, I've always going to ask you where that came from. Now, um, now I've got the now, shirt. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so I used to read comic books. I used to draw. So now I, when I'm when I want to de-stress or if I'm if I'm really burnt out for something, I'll sit down and draw. So uh, again, uh, cool art, bold guy, enough said is my Instagram page. Have a look. Um, I drew I draw comic book characters. I draw iconic film characters. Um, I love doing nice. it. It helps me relax. Helps me you know, enjoy myself. I love being in the gym. Uh, again, it's, I think yeah, it yeah. comes back to the hero thing again. Uh, <laughs> if I if I could get wear a cape and get away with it without being arrested, I probably would. <laughs> Um, but I'm, you know, I've got my uh, my black belt in kung fu. I do uh, weights uh, two, three times a week. I do cardio. I do boxer size. I do legs, buns, and tums. So, what are you exercising every day? Pretty much every day, yeah. Cool. Today I won't because I'm here with you, Kevin. But yeah, normally yeah. every day I, I tend to get into the gym. Um, what else in there in your private life? I think you mentioned family. I think I know. I, I know you're interested in music. So just tell us a bit more about you know Shaquille the man. What you do outside of work. So um, in terms of the other thing that really helps center me is my faith. Um, I'm a practicing Muslim and have been since my father passed away. And it was that, that whole period of reflection of what is life about. And that brought me closer to my own personal faith. And it's something that I'm quite passionate about in terms of all faiths. And I'm very excited. I'm actually going to be speaking at the CIPD conference on a, a panel on the topic of faith. And that's, that's, a, oh, that's a, new thing, new, a new turning point for the CIPD, which I'm really happy to be part of and it will be talking about all faiths um, so I'm going to be reaching out to um, a number of my HR director counterparts um, from that world that I wasn't part of before and actually getting some insights from them about what their faith means to them in their workplace but the other thing and again I know we share some interest in, in terms of music um, I know you like Bruce Springsteen and I'm <laughs> a big fan of the big boss as well but I grew up in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s the very first film I ever saw was Grease yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and it was no surprise that not long after I had a quiff <laughs> so uh, my my music tastes are all over the place. I, I like Queen. I like ABBA. I like Spandau Ballet. I like Duran Duran. The first um, concert I ever went to was Adamant. So if if it's if it's musical, I probably like it. I like okay. all the old stuff. I like Bing Crosby. Yeah, I like yeah, Frank yeah. Sinatra. I like all those crooners. Um, I like the sound of music. <laughs> <laughs> so um, it's all coming out today. So there's lots of things I I enjoy doing. And the final thing I'll just touch on. Uh, I mentioned I like I like writing. And I've, and I've written so many articles, but writing for me is a way that I actually process a lot of what's going on inside my head. So at some point, I know you've got your book coming out, Kevin, and I'm looking forward to your book. And I've seen a number of my friends and, and counterparts, you know, from you know, Perry to Cara writing their book. So I'm hoping to follow uh, in your footsteps soon. Uh, I've got a few book ideas that I'd like to uh, put out there. And will it be an HR book or will it be something outside of the HR? It could be both. Could be both. Yeah. So there's there's a number of uh, different ideas I've got. Um, I'm, I'm I'm in discussion with Natalie Ellis, who I'm sure you know is yeah. a, a well-known blogger, and we have a book idea that we're thinking about doing this year together. I've got a book idea that I'm I'm toying with. Um, I'm hoping to do it at some point. But yeah. the focus you're not, you're not my... prepared to say anymore. You're worried that we're going to pinch your idea. <laughs> <laughs> but the focus for me has been trying to grow the consultancy because it's still my uh, still early yeah. days. And I need to keep my wife happy that I'm doing stuff that actually brings in some revenue, not just uh, living my dream that I'm, that I'm, I'm living at the yeah. moment. You've got to balance it, haven't you? Yeah, you of course. You've you got, you got to do what you like. And I think, yeah. I think you've got a good platform, Shaquille. I think you've done very well at building your profile. I think the writing's uh, good. I think your public speaking's great. 
You most probably, you're right. You now need to just get into delivering a couple of projects that you can talk about. And I think that you'll be well on your way. And I think you've got a lot to say. If this podcast is anything to to go by, there's definitely a book in there, I think. So (laughs) thank you for spending the time with us. We greatly appreciate it. And all the best for the future. Cheers. Appreciate that.